Today, to show or not to show. Uh, That is, confronted with a choice between duty and authenticity, what should we do? Welcome to Coffee with Kramer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Kramer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. So this is about a dilemma, and it's one that I find uh, people confronted with in a way that might come out as someone saying to them, well, just put on a good show, uh, you know, put, put, put your face forward and, uh, or put your best foot forward and, and do the best you can, you know, make it look good, something like that. And that's what I mean by a good show, make a good show of it. Uh, and it, but, but the contrast between authenticity and duty is the real crux of the discussion today, because there are times when those are at odds with each other. Not necessarily because the world puts us in an awkward predicament, but because we ourselves put ourselves in an awkward predicament. We arrive at a place where we just don't want to do the right thing, and yet we know the right thing to do, and we know that we ought to do it, but we don't want to do it. And so we can do it, but in so doing, we'll be kind of fakey. Yeah, I'll show up and I'll put on a show. I mean, I'll do what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not going to be happy about it. And, and we're told that we're supposed to do things out of the joy of our hearts, out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaketh, after all. And so we don't know what to do on those days when we're supposed to worship, but we don't feel like worshiping, which would be a lot of days for some people. And so that dilemma, you understand what I'm describing now, between authenticity and duty shows up in some, and I'll give some specific examples here only to lay the groundwork for why I want to have the conversation. And that is, you know, we have, so we have a commission to be authentic, for instance, in our offerings, in our giving, to give cheerfully. This is, and it's important to Paul when he tells this to the church at Corinth, give cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. Don't give begrudgingly. That, that's the worst thing you can possibly do. But then what about the days I'm not cheerful about giving? I don't want to give this money today. I want to hang on to it. You say, well, you've got a sorry attitude on that day. That's my point. On the day when I have a sorry attitude, should I go ahead and give even though I'm not cheerful and just pretend like I'm doing the right thing because I'm giving? Or do I just refuse to give and say, well, I'm not cheerful about it, so I'm not giving? After all, Paul said he loves a cheerful giver. I'm not cheerful. He's not going to love me. I'm not going to (laughs) give. So the contest is between authenticity and duty. I want to be authentic, but I just don't feel like doing the right thing today. So what do I just do the wrong thing? Because then I can be authentic. So I'm making a choice between authenticity and duty. Do I give cheerfully on the one hand, or uh, do I also then on the other hand, to put it in two good terms, go ahead and give when it hurts. 
uh, have compassion. Okay, fine. My heart is broken for this person. I want to serve them. I give them what I can. I care about them. I weep over them. I love them. I'm, I'm compassionate. Good. Authenticity's there. What about when the feeling's not there? Should I go ahead and act in love with a stone-cold heart? That's often an option for me. I'm just kidding, uh, sort of. Uh, or worshiping, worshiping. I, I, I mean, how could anyone worship and not be sincere about it? That's the point. I mean, to worship insincerely would be the greatest hypocrisy of all, right? I mean, what else could you do more important before God Almighty than bow yourself in humility before him and worship him? And yet, on the other hand, I've got this command that says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And so the church comes together to worship. And I say, well, I'm not going to go today uh, because I just can't do it sincerely. My heart's not there. I'm just not in it. And I'm, so I'm, but so what, I'm supposed to be disobedient because I'm not sincere, or am I supposed to show up and be insincere? Because I sure don't feel like obeying today. So I've got to, you get the dilemma, right? Another example, and this one, uh, Daisy happened to bring up on the way over when she, when we talked about what these notes were about for this episode, Daisy produces the show for those of you who haven't heard it before, haven't heard that comment before. Uh, and she does a lot of counseling. And so she just mentioned an example that would be like this, not about a particular person, but just saying this kind of thing could come up. And that's, and that's the difference. I put it in these terms. She didn't, but it comes down to courtesy. I mean, obviously, there is an obligation that I have to be courteous towards people, and my authenticity says I want to be kind to people. So when I have a gentle spirit and a kind heart and my my desire to be kind to someone is just overflowing from the abundance of the goodness of my heart, that doesn't sound very sincere right there, does it? But anyway, you get the idea. When it really is overflowing from my heart, easy. Courtesy is easy. Kindness is easy. But what about when the person is making me grind my teeth and I have to, you know, I have to choose to be a hypocrite. Oh, hi. It's so nice to see you. You look so fine. I'm just so happy you could be here today. Or to be sincere. What are you doing here? <laughs> so I can, the, the curtness or even the avoidance, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to be there. I'm not going to be around that person is quite the opposite of showing up and saying, well, you know, I don't, I'm not a fan of this person today. I don't want to be around them today, but I can be courteous. And so I'm just going to, I'm going to act as if I'm happy to see them. Is it, is that hypocrisy or is that just fulfilling my duty, my obligation to be courteous in a context? And by the way, courtesy is just a common, uh, common courtesy is one of the obligations that we have as a sense uh, as, as a basic sense of human beings towards other people. When people list, for instance, W.D. Ross, who I've spoken about with you before, lists the obligations that humans have towards each other, manners are, 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 are a part of those obligations that we have at a most, as a most basic sense, uh, just to be courteous towards someone. So should I be obedient to the demand that I be courteous, or should I be sincere and be curt? Uh, I, so obviously, I mean, this dilemma comes up in a, in a thousand different forms. So I could just keep going down a list of choices that you have to make. And I've, I've had this encounter with people. I've had uh, staff members who worked for me before who uh, would call when I, I pastored a church for a long time. If you don't know this, I'm, I'm the president at Criswell College now, but I pastored a church for 17 years and I've done interim pastorates and I fill the pulpit in churches all the time. So I've done church ministry for ages. 
And uh, one time I had a music minister who, who called me up and very sincerely, I mean, this, 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 this person was never insincere, uh, said, I just don't have it in me to worship today or to lead the worship service. Uh, what should I do? And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'll, I can share with you my answer another time, but the point is he was facing this dilemma. I've got an obligation to show up. I've got a duty to show up, including the fact that it's his job, that that's what he's paid to do. But then he's got, you know, sort of an obligation to be sincere. I mean, this is worship we're going to be leading after all. What's he supposed to do? I don't know for sure that I'll come back to that today, but I'll come back to it at some point with you. Uh, and so I just wanted to give the example of the kinds of dilemmas that would show up. And these dilemmas are easy when your heart's in a perfect place. They're not a dilemma. You're sincere and you do the right thing. That's easy. The challenge is when we know what we ought to do but don't want to do it, which is a place where we live regularly in a fallen world and in an imperfect world. When authenticity tells us, and this is, I'm not going to say this happens to me often, but it does happen. It can happen. When authenticity tells us to word carve a bore into shavings, but duty says, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. What are you supposed to do? Those moments are where the challenge resides. If we're silent, are we being a hypocrite because I'm not correcting the error? Or, and by the way, not expressing the truth that's in my heart, which is that that's an error and that person needs to be corrected. Or are we simply being obedient, you know? And in our obedience, maybe the authenticity is not the most important thing, but that doesn't seem right, does it? I mean, after all, in Christianity, not being a hypocrite is a pretty fundamental teaching. Uh, Jesus uses the word ahypocritos all the time. Don't be like the hypocrite, uh, hypocrites, hypocrites either. Don't be like any of those people. So here's, so here's what I want to do is just I want to rummage around this idea with you for a few minutes, and I'm not going to pretend that I have an easy answer. There's not an easy answer to this question. I think there are some things for believers in particular to keep in mind, and, and I, uh, I think most of you are believers, or you are very interested in what it means to be a believer, or you wouldn't listen to this podcast most likely, so I get it. So speaking to you as someone who's trying to do the right thing as a Christian, uh, I think we can rummage around the idea and get some platforms from which we can make better decisions about it. And one of those begins with a look at, mm, I know you're going to get nervous when I say this, but we'll only be here for one, one segment, uh, to talk about Kant for a minute. So when Kant examines this, this question, uh, it has something to do with a contrast, both with utilitarianism and virtue. And, and again, utilitarianism would say, well, the right thing to do is whatever produces the best results, which means you just figure out what you want and you figure out the best way to get there and, and you work your way there. But that, you know, that, that lends itself to selfishness and, you know, to something that has nothing to do with doing the right thing. It just has to do with doing what works for you. And, and that doesn't feel right to most believers. And so I'm not going to get on that. We've talked about that before. There's also a virtue. And by the way, if you look at episode 40, uh, the one called So Heavenly Minded, you would hear some of that discussion. 
But we've also talked about the, the, the idea of virtue ethics, and this is the one that I would bring up now, and this is the one that a lot of Christians like to fall back on as sort of a default for what ethics should be for Christians. How do we figure out what's right or wrong? Well, it's not about what we do. It's about who we are, you know, what, what kind of person we're supposed to be, and everything from the Sermon on the Mount to uh, God trans, you know, writing the laws in our hearts and not on stone tablets uh, makes us feel that way, like virtue ethics is the right way for us to think about ethics. And it can be, and we may or may not have time to come back to that question today. And if you want to hear more about virtue ethics and what makes it so valuable and how it actually is a helpful tool for us understanding how we fit into the world around us and into life, then episodes 53 and 54 would be for you, and eventually a third episode to kind of close out the discussion on virtue ethics. That's how long I've let it go, 10 episodes since I've gone back to it. But that one was called Self-Help for Society, by the way, and we talked about historical tradition in one of them and the narrative of human life in the other because it has to do with how human beings become complete, become what they're supposed to be. And you can see that that's what Christianity is very significantly about. How do we become the creature that God made us to be, which is right? But that doesn't make it necessarily a fulfillment of duty or morality itself. And so I want to talk about morality in more, more in Kant's terms, and he actually contrasts it with what you would say from the perspective of somebody who's looking at it as, looking at ethics, looking at it right and wrong as virtue. And, but the contrast is simple, and it's, it's right on target for what we're trying to ask today about whether I should go ahead and do my duty even when I don't want to, or if I should maintain this level of authenticity that I think is so important and that we know actually is so important. And so for Kant, it's actually really important to grasp that when you're talking about duty, the things that are your obligation to do, this is what you are obligated morally to do. It's your duty. That's how I'm using the word duty, not guard duty, uh, but just the thing you have to do in order to do right. His point is, it's not ever actually duty unless you're only doing it because it's duty. If you want to do it, now we're not stopping here. This is just to get a point of discussion, okay? The morality is not the question today. The morality is half of the question today. But the moral side of this, from Kant's perspective, is the side that acknowledges the only time you're really doing something because it's moral is when you're doing it only because it's moral. And you didn't want to do it anyway. So, for example, he says, it's a duty, it's an obligation, and this is where he's nuancing it. So he's already gone through the, the rough strokes of making this point. If you wanted to do something just for fun, that doesn't have anything to do with duty. But he says also things that really are your duty. If you already want to do them, there's nothing moral about you doing it. You just happen to do it. So, for instance, it is, and I'm reading this from Kant's groundwork for the metaphysics of morals. See, aren't you glad that you're hearing someone read to you from the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals. You don't get this every day. It is a duty to maintain one's life. And in addition, everyone has also a direct inclination to do so. See, you have a duty to do it. You have an inclination to do it. But there's no intrinsic worth to the anxious care most men take for it their maxim has no moral import because they have a direct inclination to do it. What Kant is saying there is, 
You already wanted to do that. We're not going to pat you on the back and say, oh, good boy for trying to stay alive. That was so morally upright of you. It wasn't morally upright of you. It was just what you wanted to do. Oh, and lo and behold, it happens to be moral also. But that doesn't make your actions morally worthy or praiseworthy. And so he goes on to say, they preserve their life as duty requires, no doubt, but not because duty requires. On the other hand, if adversity and hopeless sorrow have completely taken away the relish for life, this is where it becomes duty. If the unfortunate one, strong in mind, indignant at his fate, rather than desponding or dejected, wishes for death and yet preserves his life without loving it, not from inclination or fear, but from duty, then his maxim has a moral worth. Now, that's a hard way to look at life, by the way. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not embracing fully what Kant is saying here, although I really do like it if we had more time to talk about it, but we don't. But you get what he's saying. It's, you're not actually fulfilling your duty unless it's fulfilling your duty because it's your duty. Otherwise, you just happen to coincide with what your duty was. And he gives other examples, too, uh, to be beneficent with someone else. Fine. If you, if you just like giving to other people because it makes you feel good, that has no true moral worth. This is also in his groundwork in the very next paragraph that he gives. The maxim lacks the moral import, namely that such actions be done from duty, not from inclination. So he's, he's saying the opposite of a virtue ethicist. And we talked about this before, that if you were looking at it from the perspective of virtue, you would say, well, if you give the money to this poor person, but you give it out of a begrudging heart, you're, that's of no moral worth. You're worthless. That's what a virtue ethicist would say. Kant would say exactly the opposite. If you wanted to give it to them, that's of no moral worth. You're just doing what you wanted to do. If you wanted to have moral worth, you'd have to give it to them when you don't want to. That doesn't mean you can't give it to them when you want to. It just means you shouldn't pat yourself on the back like you're some great moral creature because you did what you felt like doing anyway. That's all he's getting at. Okay, you get the idea. And so he does it with benevolence and some other issues to make the same point. But his point is duty can only be fulfilled by someone who is doing it solely because it is duty. And I could read you a, a long paragraph to illustrate this point and especially in the relationship between sympathy that we have with other people, this natural inclination we have to meet the needs of other people, and then the moral obligation we know we have to meet the needs of other people. And this one really does come up all of the time because it's, it's fine when you see a person one time and they're down and out on their luck and, and you decide you're going to give them a $5 bill or take them to McDonald's and get them something to eat or take them to a nice restaurant not that McDonald's is not nice, and get them something to eat or whatever you're going to do. That's all fine. That's easy. Seeing that same person come back to you again, seeing that same person after they've wasted the first money that you gave them and deciding then that because they are suffering, even though they don't deserve the help and you don't want to help them and you don't trust them anymore, that you're still going to help them because you feel like you do have a moral obligation. And I know there are arguments to be made where, oh, well, you're just enabling them. I'm not talking about any of that. Just take all that out of the, out of the picture for the moment and say, but you know, you, you need, when a person is suffering, you should help them not suffer. So I know there are other ways to help them not suffer, but even those ways require you to give of your energy to do something to make a difference in their life. And whatever that is, 
at that moment, and you think to yourself, why am I spending my time helping this person that's just wasted the help I gave to them before, and yet let's do it. That's the part where Kant would say, now you're fulfilling a moral obligation. Now you're doing your duty. And that's kind of the position. So I'm not presuming that's correct in this discussion. I'm saying to you, that's the dilemma we run into all the time. What we think of as this dilemma where the day comes that it's time for us to give our offering or our gift or our Christmas present or whatever it is that we're supposed to give away, and we sort of have this thing that goes, no, 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 don't give that away. Keep it. Don't do it. Now, if I do give it, I've got this little twinge of guilt inside of me that says, you didn't do that sincerely. And so what was that worth? Was I supposed to withhold the gift and maintain my authenticity? Or was I supposed to overpower this selfish will that emerged in me that created an authentic desire not to give the gift? Am I supposed to overcome that selfishness and just act in obedience to the thing that I knew was right to begin with? Now, so I think as believers especially, because we care so much about both doing the right thing, meaning I want to figure out what God wants me to do and I want to do it, but also being the person that he wants me to be, having my heart in the place he wants it to be. Jesus puts a lot of emphasis on that. Not enough just to change your actions. Something needs to change inside. For me to get those two things together at the same time is fine and dandy, but for me to get one or the other leaves me questioning what I'm supposed to do. That's what I'm talking about right here. And so uh, in part of this discussion and the way we're going to have to talk about it today, uh, what we're acknowledging is that morality, and I mean by this, the list of moral obligations, duties that we have, and that's how I'm going to use the word morality today. It's a legitimate way. This is the Kantian way to use the term, but it's not the only way. Virtue ethicists, again, would use it a different way, and that's fine. It's just a different option for how to use the term. But in terms of the way we're talking about it today, morality, meaning the list of things that you can do and not do that are right and that are wrong, that's not our end. That's not our ultimate purpose for existence. And we know that. Conformity to Christ is our ultimate purpose. He, you know, whom he did foreknow, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might not might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, you know, we, we, we are aware that we're supposed to do more than just follow a list of rules. If he just needed people to perform certain actions, he, he could have done it with automatons, you know, but he didn't choose to do that. He created us with this ability to become whole beings, and he wants us to be like Christ. He's He's given us that command, and then he's given us his spirit so we can achieve that. That's more than morality. That's more than checking the boxes and saying, I followed all the rules today, which is, you know, where the Pharisees went the wrong way. And I just say the Pharisees, but you know what I mean. All legalists throughout all of history have gone the wrong way because we do that. So morality is not our end. And and what happens with this is that some, and I'm just clarifying again, some ethicists, some theologians, don't distinguish between the commission that we have to be like Christ and then the commission we have to be moral, to do the right thing. And so they end up thinking Christianity, and this this happens a lot, uh, Christianity, they think, has a different ethic or a different morality than the rest of the world has. 
and, and if you start thinking about that, you realize why they would say this. It's a reasonable assertion for a person to make. I just don't hold the, I don't agree with it. But it's, and the reason I don't agree with it is because I, morality is not the end all and be all of our existence. Now, again, that's saying something for an ethicist. So I know there's a lot more nuance I need to put on that for it to make sense. To those of you who are ethicists, take a breath. I'm, I know what I'm saying, and, I'm, and I understand why that was offensive. And it's not where I would stay without having the nuance to it. But if you're not an ethicist, you're right with me. You get what I'm saying. The, the rules, the duty side of morality and ethics, that's not the end-all and be-all of our existence. But if, if we took it to be that way, or if we didn't make a distinction between moralism or morality and then what Christianity is altogether, then we would start to say, well, the world has one set of moral standards and we have a different set of moral standards. But in reality, the difference in that case isn't about morality, not the way we're using the term today. So we have, as Christians, an expectation that we would do things that go beyond what are in the list of the moral code. It's part of what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of that is not just expanding the moral expectations for believers, but saying why the expectations for believers go beyond what any reasonable moral code would expect. So, for instance, he doesn't just say, you've heard that it was said, and then it's don't kill, and then, and then add to that, but I say, don't even hate. He doesn't just do that. He goes beyond it to say, but furthermore, don't even have this negative thought in your mind towards them. Don't call someone, you know, and, and he goes beyond it to say, you have to do more than that. So it's the same thing with the enemies when he doesn't just say, well, you know, you can strike your enemy or do this or that. But I say, not just don't strike them, but actually turn the other cheek. And then, and then you know, with the coat and the cloak or walk with them another mile or whatever it is, he's saying go way beyond that. Those are more than duties. Those are more than moral obligations for believers. Those are fulfillments of a different understanding of our role in the world altogether. And again, I, I know I'm using the term morally very restrictively here about duty, specific duties, which we'll identify in a second. So to think that Christians fulfill or have a morality that others don't, and I'm going to leave this in just a moment, but it comes up enough that I just want somebody who's thinking this to have it in their head to be able to answer it. To think that Christians fulfill or have a moral obligation that others don't have, that Christians, for instance, have a purity in fulfilling duties that others can't, which is, by the way, another way to take that, is what so often produces Pharisees out of Christians or somebody Pharisaical out of Christians, uh, exactly like the New, Test New Testament-era Jewish leaders thought of themselves in comparison with those dirty Gentiles or the rabble over there. We think of ourselves that way as, oh, well, God has empowered us to live this morally pure life that others are not able to live, and, and, and you just can't help it. It puts you in this position where you're looking down your nose at someone else. We become supercilious in those moments. And that's not what Christianity is about, obviously. And, and I know you know that. But what that comes down to is a better grasp of what our duty is and how we're supposed to relate our Christianity to our duty, because our Christianity has more, has more in it than duty. But it doesn't have less in it than duty. There is something that's supposed to change about our behavior and our ability to obey the things that we've been told to do. 
So in, in context, if we're thinking about duty in our lives, every disciple is imperfect. Every disciple is in process, every one of us. And so all of us, think of us as the bridge. All of us are bridges with some gaping holes, sometimes that have never been filled. You know, we were in construction, and it's just not done yet. Others that have fallen through because we left them in disrepair. You know, the slats are gone. Uh, Some part of the bridge is broken off or something like that. What duty provides for, for us is the path forward even where we're missing a piece, where our actions or our choices need to jump over a fallen or a rotted slat in us. You know, we're missing a piece, but our actions, they can jump over that fallen slat. They can jump over the piece that's rotted out, or they can balance in this precarious position where the handrail was broken off. Our actions figure out what they're supposed to do even when we ourselves are missing some pieces. And we have to live with that because we're not perfect. We're not completed. If we were completed, it would be fine. We just just take out the marble and roll it all the way across the Mississippi. But we're not complete. We have holes all over us. And duty provides for us a means for getting across this gap between what we are and what we are supposed to be, as we talked about it in the discussions about virtue that we had. So, for instance, self-control, self-control as a basic Christian virtue, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? Self-control would not be an element of Christian virtue. It wouldn't be a fruit of the Spirit if duty were not an important part of the Christian life. What are you controlling? It's not like you have to self-control the Holy Spirit within you. It's like you have to you have to control the part of you that loves people. Maybe you have to do that a little bit. You get the idea. I'm joking. It's not about controlling the parts of you that are right. Self-control means the ability to sit down that beast within you that wants to be old, wants to be the way you used to be. That's what self-control does. That presence tells you that what I'm talking about is the way we are as believers in this world. So I got an email, for instance, and this this will hit uh, obliquely on what we're talking about today, but also it's just worth mentioning this. I get an email. I get emails from listeners every once in a while. I listen to an episode and send me something about it. And it's a lot of fun. I enjoy it. I get an email from a particularly uh, fun person to interact with. Really smart. They think about the stuff and and they interact with a, a few. Th- they've interacted with a few of the episodes. And it's been really helpful and encouraging and fun. So I got this one email, and one part of it was to say this. Uh, he says, I think one of the primary reasons Christians are seen as judgmental in, in the world, meaning, is because we're trying to live a should life in an is world. Now, there's a part of that that's absolutely true, and I get what he's saying. I agree with it in that sense. Uh, and I've talked about this with the concept of existentialism. We've had episodes on that as well. Uh, that in the world, there is a sense that things just happen to be. They don't have to be a certain way. There is no essence to what we ought to be. There's just the way we are. We exist, and then we decide what we're going to be. And so in that world, where is is the foundation to our existence, and then essence is just what we choose randomly. I don't have a right to assert my essence onto your life and so on. So Christians become, you know, seen as judgmental, because we look judgmental to someone, and I mean artificially judgmental, to someone who doesn't believe our standards should actually apply to them. So in that sense, I agree 
completely, and it's just true. I mean, that is going on in the world around us all, all over right now. But, but, it, but in the same sense, I would add to it that uh, we are guilty <laughs> of being judgmental fairly often uh, because we actually are willing to condemn in others what we condone in ourselves, what we don't see in ourselves, or we think we've put a good enough show on, we've restrained enough in ourselves, and those two things are not, they can be the same, they can be different, but they can be the same thing. That is, I can legitimately stop the evil in me that wants me to be, uh, to, to berate other people, to humiliate other people. I can legitimately stop that, but I could also have the attitude that is berating them on the inside. And in that moment, I'm exercising self-control, and so there's a sense in which I'm doing the right thing. But at the same moment when I'm saying those words and I'm, and I'm telling someone else who is berating others, you, you shouldn't be berating them. I may be correcting them on something I'm not doing outwardly, but I'm still guilty of on the inside. And in legitimate terms, I should be considered judgmental in that moment. Even though they may not be calling me judgmental for the right reason, I deserve it. And most of the time, I've discovered, by the way, that when people are criticizing me, if I remember that, it helps tremendously to say, well, they, they may not be hitting the right parts of me that need to be criticized, but if I just allow that criticism to hit me wherever it does, it's going to hit somewhere that should have been criticized, even if they weren't saying the right thing about it. That, that, that's just true about us as believers. I mean, we, we have to admit it's in our human nature. It's part of the baggage we carry with us through life that we do often pick up this sense that we're better than the people around us. And so our, my desire today in the, in the discussion today is not just to make us aware of that, not like to make us feel guilty about that, but to deal better with the reality of what's going on when we're obeying what we're supposed to obey, doing what we're supposed to do, but in reality still wrestling with the same nature that would gladly not do it. Uh, and that would probably change our attitude toward toward the people who are around us. If we would remember that we're not just in the John, you know, or I, I can't remember whether it was Charles or John Wesley, you know, there, but for the grace of God go I. I don't remember which one it was, but whichever one said it, that um, not, not just in that sense, you know, I could easily have had this or that happen differently and be over there myself. But, but in the very literal sense that if, if God were to examine my heart and soul right now, I'd be there. I would be where they, I am as guilty as they are, just in a different way. Okay, so anyway, all that said, the idea uh, in, a practical, in a practical sense, what I want to say to this is-ought thing that we were talking about just a moment ago from this uh, really smart listener email that I got, uh, in a practical and social sense, like out in public, I think what happens in reality is that uh, both sides of this, the Christian side, the non-Christian side, the judgmental side, the, the no, I'm just trying to be sincere side, whatever it is, commit sort of the same error. So, for instance, uh, Footloose, you know, this is, I'm going to use these two movies, a movie and a novel, as the example here, Footloose and the Scarlet Letter. They portray Christians as judgmental, right? So, and whether it's Nathaniel Hawthorne or pff, whoever's behind Footloose, I have no idea. Uh, they portray the same thing. You know, there is uh, this uh, hypocrisy among Christians who are judging others for not doing, you know, for, for doing these, these worldly carnal things and so on like that. But in reality, they're also being hypocritical. It's interesting, now, and, that, and that's a fair accusation. I mean, the, the criticism of Puritan 
Christianity expressed in the Scarlet Letter is legitimate, right? I mean, that, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying that there were, there were no sincere or uh, heartfelt uh, believers among Puritans. Of course there were. There were tremendous believers among Puritans. But I am saying the criticism is legitimate. We know there was a lot of hypocrisy going on as well. And Footloose makes exactly the same point. I know it seems like a silly comparison, but they are making the same point. Those movies themselves, or the movie and the novel themselves, they become morality plays. They are morality plays. They're making a moral claim. They are judgments pronounced against the immaturity and hypocrisy of religiosity as shallow moralism. So they themselves become this moralistic claim against people they believe are moralistic. Now, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have been said. I'm, I'm saying to that, all of us, as people face this crisis, the, 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 the uh, judgment that they provide, for instance, you know, comes from this deeper, this is how they believe it, this deeper understanding of humanity and the broader moral obligations. We have to respect one another without hypocrisy, which you may embrace. That's fine. And that is good. I mean, we like that. But that's what they're embracing. The point is that they're coming from a moral perspective in order to say what other people are doing that's wrong. Same thing happens with all these rallies and ads on the political right and the political left, especially on the extremes, depicting the other side, not as different politically, but as morally vacant enemies of God bent on world domination and Satan worship, uh, ignoring the fact that the other political side is willing, and both, both sides are this way, they are willing to sacrifice comfort for the sake of the cause they believe is morally mandated. I'm not saying they're morally equivalent. I'm not saying you should jump on either side, heaven forbid. I am saying the two are condemning each other without a recognition that it's not like I have morality and you don't, and therefore you're wrong, and when you condemn me, it's only because you have no morals. The reality is they just have a commitment to a different set of morals, and their criticism of us is that we don't embrace their set of morals in the same way our criticism of them could be legitimately said to contain the idea that it's simply because they don't embrace our morals. Again, I don't believe they're equivalent because I follow Christ because I think he's the Lord. He's the right one to follow. Those are the ones we ought to follow. So they're not, not, not morally equivocating, but talking socially. We end up doing exactly the same thing to each other. So all of this to get back to the question that we raised at the beginning. This is the point. What are we supposed to do when we're torn between hypocrisy because we do what we don't sincerely want to do and then outright disobedience because we are authentic even though what we actually do is wrong? You see what I'm saying? The examples that I gave above. Hypocrisy, well, I gave, but I sure didn't want to. Or outright disobedience, well, I kept true to my heart and I kept the money for myself. <laughs> you know, what, what are we supposed to do? So some things to keep in mind. One, we're a lot less perfect than we think we are. Our motives are never pure, never. There's not a moment in your life you're going to be able to say, oh, I was finally perfect in that moment. Our obedience is never complete. We've talked about why that is in the episode on W.D. Ross a long time ago. Our knowledge is never perfect. Our preparation is never whole. Our performance is never ideal. We're fallen human beings. We're complex. We are a lot less perfect than we think we are. Other Additionally, we are also, on the far extreme from that, a lot more complete 
than we think we are. The Spirit is never absent from a believer. The Holy Spirit, the capital S, Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And also, our weakness and failures are never greater than the Spirit's power and faithfulness. So in one sense, we have a lot less perfection than we think we do, but in the other sense, we have a lot more perfection than we act like, right? Both of those things mean that we're complex, more complex than we'd like to admit. So we have a spirit and our own renewed spirit transforming us so we can care sincerely about the right things, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. But we also have a psyche. I'm using the word psyche. Suke uh, shows up in uh, the New Testament in some, in some passages to really talk about your inmost being, and it's sort of a naturalistic description, you know, what you are as a result of the natural world around you. So uh, the natural body that's destroyed in 1 Corinthians 15 is a sukikos body. Uh, in case you're wondering where I, why I'm using this term, we have a psyche, and because it's easy for us to relate to it in this way, we have a psyche that's still informed by our history, including the law, meaning all the things that happened to me when I was growing up and messed me up, those are still present. It's not like I've forgotten them. I can become a follower of Christ, completely committed to him, empowered by his Holy Spirit, and still know that I was abused as a child. I was not. I'm saying a person could say this. And so we still have that psyche, and because we have the Spirit, the law means something different to us. Duty means something different to us. It used to be this guide, this thermostat that said, this is what you're supposed to do, or really not to do. Don't dishonor your parents, murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, or covet. And that was it. That was how you knew what to do. I'm saying when we were not, I'm not saying in the Old Testament, I'm saying when we were not believers, when we were in our natural state. But now, it's, it's just a thermometer to us. You are or are not being what you will become, as you can see, because you're still doing the things you're not supposed to do in the law. Oh, well, I'll stop doing those things. Well, that's not going to make you a better person. But as long as you're doing those things, it is going to reveal that you're not a better person. So at least we know what's going on with you right now. So I had a conversation with a psychologist early in my ministry, and I'll, I'll try to keep this short because I know we can get all the way to the end of this episode, I think. And he was pointing out uh, that changing behaviors in people often results in changing their attitudes. So this is just true. You know, change your habits and your attitude changes over time. It happens to people. My response to that with him was just to say, man, that really seems the opposite of the gospel, doesn't it? About your heart needing to change and that becomes the source of your holiness and so on. And yet I still know it's, I know good and well that it's true. I know that changing some behaviors or habits over time can change uh, how a person thinks about life and what they end up doing. It, it can add strength or attitude or spirit to the person in a way that other things don't. And I've seen it happen at camps. I've seen it happen at retreats. They demonstrate that that's the case. But the difference is this. There's doing that with someone who is still the same person they used to be. In you know the way the, the scriptures talk about this in, in the Proverbs and in the New Testament in 2 Peter and Jude, I think, is washing, you know, a hog. Uh, You can wash it off, but it goes back to its wallowing, right? Or you can clean off a dog, but it's going to go back and lick up its vomit. Uh, They go back to the old way that they were. I'm sorry, that's what it says. Daisy's making a face at me. I mean, that's scripture. I mean, that's just what the passage says. Don't don't criticize me. Call Peter. So uh, I don't even know if he'll answer. Anyway, the point is that that's different from lifting a person out of the mire 
which has entrenched them again after they had escaped it. That's different. And so in the complexity of the struggles that are inside of us, duty can be not just a dead corpse pretending to be alive, to use the metaphor, but a living body refusing to get back into the ground. Duty can be that. In other words, don't use, and this is, I think, what Paul means in Galatians 5 when he says, don't use your liberty as an occasion to the flesh. Yeah, you're not bound by the law anymore, but it's not so you can go back and be the way you used to be. Don't use your desire to worship or serve sincerely. Don't use that as a reason not to worship or serve when you're struggling with your sincerity. Christian maturity is evidenced by faithfulness, not because mature Christians have overcome the natural barriers to a new life, but because they've learned to choose regularly, not just to do the right thing, to follow the rules, not that, but because they learn to choose regularly the person they are going to be over the person they used to be. And there, so think of it this way. There are two ways to be a hypocrite, right? You can pretend to be holy when you're not, you know, make a good show for everyone. Uh, be, uh, you know, to be living in things you know are wrong, but to put on a show in the choices you make publicly so everybody thinks you're good. There's that kind of hypocrisy to pretend to be holy when you're not. But there's also the kind of hypocrisy that shows up when you pretend to be unholy when you're not unholy, when you are holy. To hide the gift of the Spirit that God has given you behind an old way of living that you already chose to abandon when you came to faith. That's also hypocrisy. That's not who we are. That's not who we were made to be. And sometimes duty is the path back to living in that life. You always have more than one nature to betray, right? You can betray one or the other. Growing in maturity, I believe, means betraying what you used to be in favor of of what you know you are becoming. And not just because you want to become it. I'm not saying wishful thinking. This is not behaviorism not just because you want to become it, but, but what the spirit within you has already guaranteed you are going to become, the, the life that's hidden with Christ in God right now, right? So what I'm encouraging is simply this, one phrase and I'm done. Walk in the spirit, even when it disappoints your flesh. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at berrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.